Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. It's October 2015 in the New South Wales town of Wagga. A highway patrol officer has just finished filling up at a service station when he spies a speeding vehicle. Automatic number plate recognition shows the silver Nissan is stolen. And when the officer flashes on his car's blue and red lights, the Nissan doesn't stop. A chase is on. Police radios sound with the distinct three-beep officer in distress signal as things quickly turn violent. On a dirt road, the Nissan slows down and fires multiple shots towards the lone responding officer. He reverses backwards at high speed but reinforcement isn't far behind. As more police cars arrive at the scene, the assailants, Gino and Mark Stocko, continue their spray of bullets. They get away. The father and son spend the next 12 days on the run, but they've already been on the run for the better part of a decade. In one of the largest police searches Victoria has ever seen, unlimited resources are allocated to catch this duo after they cross the border. The media's been calling them modern-day bushrangers. But for the families whose lives they've destroyed, there's no glorifying what the Stockos have done. They're thieves. Entitled criminals who have spent years terrorising trusting farmers and families across dozens of properties. Gino and Mark Stocko's blatant disregard for authority has been well proven by a track record of offences stretching far and wide across Australia. They've gotten particularly good at taking what was never theirs, wreaking havoc on a place and then vanishing from it. This time, though, they've levelled up. The Stockos have just taken a life. Hundreds of police of every rank and from every branch have been deployed over a stretch of 46,000 square kilometres and three states. Uniformed cops, the Crime Command, Special Ops and more elite squads, all united with one purpose. To find the pernicious Gino and Mark Stocko and stop them. But even if they do, 
Will police have enough evidence to end the Stockos' eight-year crime spree for good? I'm Emma Gillespie and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In the mid-90s, the Stockos seemed like any other Aussie family. A mum and dad, Connie and Gino, and their two teenage kids, Mark and Christina. But in 1997, the breakdown of this seemingly happy family marked the beginning of a dark new chapter for Gino, of crime and violence. It was a path he wouldn't walk alone, though, as little by little, Gino's son Mark would join him in his offending. What started as stolen groceries or a fallout with an employer would manifest into serious lawlessness, the likes of which would see the pair listed amongst Australia's most wanted criminals. When they were finally captured, Gino and Mark Stocko were charged with 34 crimes between them, including the murder of 68-year-old Rosario Chimone. Investigative journalist Nino Bucci began reporting on the Stockos in October 2015. That was around the same time that most of us began hearing about these so-called modern-day bushrangers. During the two-week period, they sought to evade an intense police manhunt. Nino went on to write a book called The Stockos, Like Father, Like Son, and he joins us now to discuss Mark and Gino's criminal evolution. Nina, let's start in Ingham in Queensland in the 80s and 90s. What sort of a place was it and how did Gino Stocko end up there? Yeah, so from my research, it seems as if Ingham was quite an interesting place around that time. It is a you know, a cane community, mostly in the sort of north of Queensland. It has had a, a long history of Italian migration, mostly to work on those cane fields. And Gino had grown up there. He'd spent most of his life up there. And what I was able to piece together as I started looking into Gino's history is that he had quite a history through the 80s and 90s of fairly petty offending you know, a little sort of stealing here and there, shoplifting. And then sort of around the end of the 90s, Gino's marriage breaks up. And I came to sort of see that as a fairly critical juncture in what sort of happened for the rest of his life. So that marriage breakdown, as you've mentioned, Gino, his wife Connie, and they had two kids, Mark and Christine. What was the fallout from that split? Why was that such a significant point in time in this story? A lot of this is sort of pieced together well after the fact, right? So I didn't speak to many people who were there at that time who could kind of say to me, I remember this happening. It was a combination of what's in psychological reports that Mark and Gino both did well after the fact. And I know memory kind of works in weird ways, so it can be sort of hard piecing this stuff together well after the fact. But certainly from that point, there is a history of Gino's offending escalating, him 
mostly, but also with Mark, commit some fairly awful family violence offending against Connie, really vindictive stuff sort of over a period of almost another decade after that. And certainly from people who did know them at the time and who knew Ingham at the time and and knew the couple at the time, they thought that was something that really set Gino down a path that he couldn't return from. Do we know much about what Gino was like as a father and his relationship with Mark in that father-son way? Not really at the time when it was still, I guess, a nuclear family. There's nothing that kind of indicates that it was anything unusual. Mark certainly doesn't describe it as anything unusual, again, well after the fact. And nobody I spoke to sort of thought that there was anything particularly odd about that family at the time they were all together and it was all four of them I suppose I was really cognizant of when I was working on this book that I'm talking to all these people who knew them at the time well after they've become infamous for other things and so some bits and pieces that might seem fairly innocuous and normal kind of family stuff all of a sudden kind of took on a different meaning. But there's certainly nothing that really indicates that it was an unusual family in any way until that separation. One of the sort of tougher aspects of this story to wrap your head around, I guess, is that Mark was dragged into the offending with Gino. What can you tell us about Mark as a kid, as a student, What sort of a trajectory did it look like his life was maybe on before things took a turn? Yeah, it looked fairly normal, really. From all reports, everything that we've sort of learnt from speaking to people, he did fairly well at school, had got into university, you know, had a girlfriend at university, was a fairly kind of normal late teens, early 20s kid until that marriage separation seemingly kind of spun his trajectory in a completely different way you know there's nothing really from that early part of his life up until the separation that gives any real indication that he was going to become the man he did become you've written how you know gino had all these sort of petty crimes in the background he was sort of always swindling or looking to get a deal or rip someone off but mark never committed a crime until he became an adult How did his crimes begin to manifest? What sort of shape did they take? He basically fell in with doing the sort of petty things Gino was doing. You know, as I said, there's really no record of Mark doing anything by himself criminally at all. On the occasions that I kind of found where it was Mark that might have stolen something, Gino was really close by with a car that they were going to escape in or, you know, there was a time where they were robbing supermarkets, for example, and, you know, Gino would be in the store next door or the next aisle or whatever. So he basically fell into the same kind of fairly petty stuff as his father. And it's kind of important, I suppose, to note here that these crimes weren't necessarily being committed out of necessity. Some of them were later on when they were on the run, when they didn't have, a, I guess, a safe way of going and buying things like you and I can but early on there was as much i guess an indication from the core material that came out later on and also the the bits and pieces i was able to glean from speaking to people who knew them at the time there's enough in that material to kind of indicate that those crimes and that kind of pattern of stealing things and rorting people was about gino's 
mindset that he deserved that, that, you know, there was a, a system in play where he felt as if he was entitled to take whatever he wanted to live, basically. Yeah, it's that mindset that I actually wanted to ask you about next. There's this psychiatrist's report which found the pair had an anti-authority belief system that they developed from years living isolated, you know, on the run in the bush. But where does that anti-authoritarian belief system really come from? And what does that really mean to hold a belief system like that? Yeah, it's fascinating now because post-pandemic, we're a lot more familiar with seeing people like this and people who, I guess, believe in things that are a little left and centre and and don't necessarily believe in governments and structures that we all sort of take in as given. But in the context of the Stockos, it seems very much to have been almost a weird us against them mentality that they sort of felt that the world was out to get them and the only way they could kind of fight back against that was to be completely reliant on each other and to not trust anybody else. In terms of how it developed, I mean... Gino says different things from memory about how he felt that there were aspects of his childhood that were unfair and that he sort of, I guess, was pushing back on a perceived grievance about how things had gone for him up until that point. But how he sort of wrapped Mark up in it, I guess, is anyone's guess, but it seems very much as if he was such a dominating personality and somebody who was able to kind of manifest these false grievances about people, about authority, about businesses that made it seem that whatever flowed from that was entirely rational. Once they were sort of locked in as this father-son duo, how did they move from Ingham, the kind of petty crimes and the fleecing that they were doing around there, into other parts of Queensland? How did their sort of tactics shift and their approach broaden? It's hard to sort of piece together after the fact what they're thinking at any given time, but certainly if you look at the record, it seems as if they were forced to move by necessity from place to place because they would steal something, rip somebody off, get in an argument and destroy a heap of somebody's property. But certainly you get this almost like a snowball rolling down a hill from that kind of early 2000s period until 2015 where they might be in Ingham for a bit, they might be doing a little bit of work, there's a report of a theft, a report of a criminal damage and then they take off again and they're, you know, down in Victoria in a part of, you know, remote New South Wales or another part of remote Queensland, work steadily for a bit, earn a bit of money, get in a fight with a landowner, steal something else. But the type of offences they were committing were becoming so much more serious to the point where they were dealing with serious arson offences, serious criminal damage or theft offences. And when it kind of got to spring 2015, it had become something that police in three states really couldn't ignore anymore. Before things really intensified to that point, They headed to Victoria from Queensland and you mentioned a bit earlier that there was a bit of harassing of Gino's ex-wife, Mark's mum. When did that reach ahead? They were really quite awful offences and it was sort of towards, I guess, spring 2003 onwards 
you know, they'll do everything from entering her house and damaging it to circulating these really offensive letters to her and her family and friends. They even sort of approached her at the supermarket at one point and sort of, I guess, followed her there. This was all around sort of Werribee, like to the west of Melbourne where her family was from and had settled. And then they kind of, you know, would stick rude notices out the front of her house, you know, on A4 pages and print them out. And all this stuff was kind of going on and on and on. And the real peak of that was in July 2004 when Mark and Gino robbed Connie at a supermarket in another suburb in Melbourne's kind of outer west. And there was a warrant issued the day after that had happened and it appears, you know, there's not a heap of records about what happened here because the next that's sort of seen of them is almost a month later and that's back up north in and around Townsville. So, you know, in a microcosm, even though that offending was awful offending just against Connie and, and obviously because of some perceived grievance from the separation, I mean, we obviously also know quite separate from this case that men who abuse their spouses and former spouses don't typically have a reason. There is no logic to it. It's violence for the sake of control. But I guess what we see in the pattern of what happened to Connie the escalating of that to you know robbing her in a supermarket car park and a warrant being issued by police and then those two you know heading off thousands of kilometers north to townsville that was the first i guess really clear sign of that pattern establishing that pattern of staying in one place serious offending getting too close to the police and then taking off somewhere thousands of kilometers away in a bid to evade capture the bid to evade capture would become the theme of the next sort of better part of 10 years. But at that time, they didn't end up being on the run for too long. I think it was only about a month before police did apprehend Gino. He went to jail. Did that have any kind of ripple effect on the relationship he had with Mark, the sort of life they were establishing? Was that an opportunity for Mark to kind of maybe break free? I've certainly written about it that way, that it was a way for Mark to break free. If you look at the time frame, if you look at the amount that Gina was in jail, it was long enough that Mark could have created some distance between them and sort of gone off on his own path. You know, he was well into his 20s then. There was plenty of time for him to, I guess, move on. He'd been involved in some of that offending on Connie, as we've said, but he was handed much more lenient sentences than his father. So that really does seem like the time, if there was ever going to be a time, that Mark could break free. But for whatever reason, he he didn't. And I don't really know why that is. I don't know whether Gino had made it clear to him that he would be relying on him when he was in prison I don't know whether Mark didn't know what to do and felt that he maybe isolated himself from his sister and his mother. You know, it's all kind of speculative and there's quite a few little patches of time in this where I've pieced together an entire timeline based on, you know, court records, first-person accounts of people and in some cases even what they tell police or medical professionals after they were arrested but there's still these kind of gaps of a few months here and there in the time frame where I'd just be fascinated to know what actually went on but I really can't know I kind of have to 
look at what happened before and look what happened after and I guess make a bit of a supposition. What's the significance of this yacht that was in their life? So there's Gino does a bit of a stint in jail. Connie's been harassed and scared for her life, but they're kind of up to their old tricks again. What's the yacht chapter of this era? Yeah, so a bit before they committed those really awful offences on Connie, they bought a yacht called the Kirawak, sort of up in New South Wales. Around that time that Gino was released for those offences on Connie, him and Mark took off and, you know, I was able to find people who'd seen them in Tasmania. There was some speculation they'd been over in South Australia, but they were certainly down in Port Ferry, which is my hometown, and that was one of the things that most got me interested about these two is that actually found their way down there. But the yacht is almost kind of fantastical in a way, the way that people would speak about it years later about these two not really having much of a clue and yet being able to take on fairly arduous journeys and then obviously when it did end up getting intercepted and and they were arrested on it in really late 2006 you know there was all sorts of stuff on there the ids of people that have been in the army and people that were high up in various churches you know stacks of cash it was completely sort of filthy but it was just quite remarkable obviously for two people that had grown up and landlocked Ingham in North Queensland and sort of been, you know, working as farmhands and and things like that to all of a sudden sort of get on a boat and try their hand at sailing. It was really, really quite bizarre. This was sort of one of the first times when there was this big kind of paper trail that tied them to a place and to crimes. Do you think that that burnt them, that they were then a lot more careful or that they changed their tactics from that point? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It certainly seems that after that they became a lot more careful, a lot less trusting. They also seemed very much to try and find safe places where they could stay for a long time, like places that needed workers that had lodgings on a farm typically or some other type of property. I mean, it's hard to kind of say whether there was something conscious that they changed as opposed to it kind of being necessity. Obviously, they both, again, found themselves in trouble with the police. Gino was again sent to prison. I think Mark may have only got a small term or or perhaps no time at all. So I guess it's kind of hard to say how much of it was, well, we don't have a boat anymore and we've just got out of prison again, so we need to find somewhere stable. There's no doubt that there was a trajectory of, Gino particularly and and Mark by extension becoming more and more paranoid, more and more careful, more and more aggressive towards people he felt had sort of slighted him. And, you know, the yacht, who can say, but the yacht certainly seems to be another one of those points where from that moment on things did escalate at a sort of steeper rate than they had up until then. Hindsight, obviously, 2020, but do you think that at that point of the sort of yacht, the breakthrough there, Gina going back to jail, that's at 2006. Did police take the Stockos seriously enough, do you think, in your research? Or was it more that 
this Gino guy was a bit of a pest, a bit of a nuisance and sort of just a repeat offender for these petty crimes? I think my main reflection on it is that they didn't almost take the family violence offending as seriously as they should have. Obviously now it's kind of almost 20 years after he committed the worst of those offences, but I'd like to think now that if that happened that A, that type of behaviour would be more harshly punished in terms of sentencing, but B, there'd be a greater understanding of the fact that people who commit these type of offences typically commit other offences as well. There is obviously family violence offenders who just commit family violence offences and are prolific at that and will do that against multiple partners and they rightly you know, should be monitored from that perspective. But there's also people like Gino where it was very clear that he had been able to co-opt his son into this offending, that he was doing the whole gamut of thing from you know prank calls and sort of doxing newsletters to actually breaking into people's house and committing acts of violence against them. So I'd like to think that that probably would have been a huge warning sign as well. But I don't necessarily think the yacht and the stuff leading up to the yacht in and of itself should have been the warning sign, probably or should have been the warning sign other than the family violence stuff that I've mentioned is the fact that these were people that were committing offences over three whole states, you know, and that because of the way that policing works in this country, it can be very hard for even, you know, states that are bordering each other to necessarily sort of marry up what is known about a certain person at a certain time and vice versa. So I think at the point of the yacht, Gino had convictions in Queensland. He'd had convictions in Victoria for the family violence offending. He'd been known to be in New South Wales at different times. Around the time they got the yacht, they realised he'd also been travelling in other places, you know, Tassie and, and possibly sort of South Australia. So I think that was probably the real warning, the real thing they should have been speaking to each other at that time, saying, hey, you know, this guy's obviously runs pretty hard and he does it over a kind of stretch of the eastern seaboard spanning thousands of kilometres. Let's make sure we keep a close eye on him when he gets out. I think that's the main thing that they should have been concerned about as opposed to just the type of offences, I guess, in and of themselves. It's interesting the family violence stuff, you know, is not really the part of this story that people know about and obviously the headlines of this idea of a father and son bush ranger fugitive duo, that that is the kind of, I guess, sexier angle or the story that people care to know about. But it's true that when you look at Gino's crimes, you know, it's all there in those early days with Connie, the way that he was offending then and even Mark's intimidation that that wasn't more of a red flag or that there weren't bigger consequences for that behaviour. Yeah, and I mean, when I think about it now, it's entirely possible that some of the controlling behaviour that I was told Gino exhibited towards Connie is exactly the type of behaviour he was able to use against Mark to keep Mark so close and to keep Mark, I guess, believing in his cause and believing in him and sticking around despite the fact that he was obviously a fairly unstable person who, you know, would kind of fly off the handle at at anything. And there's no good reason why Mark should hang around with him. But we know that he treated Connie terribly and, you know, people who knew them at the time said, look, he was a controlling guy, what you do with their money and all the rest of it. 
and maybe some of those behaviours were what helped Gino also keep Mark so close. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Emma Gillespie. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Nino Bucci about Gino and Mark Stocko. Between 2006 and 2011, they kept a relatively low profile, came out of prison, sort of did farmhand work, staying on properties in exchange for work. But then obviously that changes significantly and in the four years after 2011, everything ramps up. What was the turning point? What do you think changed during that time? Yeah, it's really hard to say. Like, It seems to me very much that Gino got more and more stuck in his ways about there being a, I guess, almost a conspiracy against him and Mark and he seemingly became more willing to share some of these views and to talk to people at length about the fact that that's how he felt about things. He'd go on fairly wild, you know, tangents to some of the people that were hiring him, you know, or employing him on their properties. And so it appears that he was almost, because he's going so far down that direction, when that was challenged, the explosions became bigger, right? So he was more likely to kind of, cut loose because he felt so aggrieved about what had happened to him. So, you know, over this period of time, it went from sort of petty offending to just the most awful criminal damage you can imagine, you know, cutting offences, setting fire to farm buildings, stealing so many things, you know, people who had taken them in effectively to their properties, to their families and, for whatever reason, and some of them don't even really know. It was little things like, you know, don't park your car here or can you, you know, do this little bit of work, you know, and it was a task of the sort that he'd done, you know, thousands of times before. A lot of it was so minor and the next these people would know, Mark and Gino were gone and they were fighting fires on their property or they were, you know, looking for stolen utes or they were, you know, trying to, get cattle back that had been let to sort of roam free because Mark and Gino had cut the fences. So catastrophic amounts of damage that they could get away with typically because they'd effectively been trusted as caretakers of some of these places, you know, so the the owners would be away sometimes for days at a time on farm business or or holiday and, you know, they used that time to basically destroy hundreds of thousands of dollars of property for these people all because of a perceived slight. They'd do it and take off in the middle of the night and wouldn't be seen again by these people. There were a couple of properties where the owners suspected that they came back again later. You know, weeks, months later, they'd come back again and steal firearms or steal fuel because they knew where, you know, the fuel was kept. So they did almost kind of keep a bit of a a network of properties where they, I guess, felt they could get supplies or, or get things of value later down the track. I mean, only they really know why it got so bad. But certainly over that period, they did far worse things than they'd done any time before that. And 
eventually that led to them attracting the attention of police again. What about the impact of just the intimidation of that behaviour on those property owners, those people that had sort of employed them or given them food and shelter, to have things like all their guns stolen and then these guys just take off, did that have a lasting impact for those people who stay on that property? They know these guys know where they live? Yeah. Most of the people I spoke to were terrified, you know, that they'd been terrified up until the point that these guys were arrested again because, as I mentioned, they're typically living in fairly remote parts of the country, you know, that it's not as if they've got the capacity to have a police officer watching their house around the clock or even to hire private security or anything like that. They're on the land and their isolation was, in effect, why they asked for Mark and Gino in the first place. And also, I suppose, why Mark and Gino probably committed the offences. They knew that these places were so isolated that when the owners weren't there, there was little chance of anybody catching them. So the people I spoke to who had these awful things done to them kind of never recovered, I guess, the equilibrium of, you know, yeah, I'm on the country and, yeah, I'm alone and, yeah, we're in the middle of nowhere, but it's okay because people around here are good people that that had been completely sort of whacked off kilter by by Mark and Gino. Did police begin to connect all of these complaints from all of these property owners through one story or another, basically the same pattern of behaviour over and over again? Were they aware that this was all coming from these two guys, that this was the Stockos, or because, as you mentioned, those different state lines, did the waters just get too muddied? It does seem that they started to piece things together and by spring 2015, there was certainly a more concerted effort on behalf of New South Wales and Queensland Police to get these guys. There was an operation started that was codenamed Rome, Operation Rome, and that actually resulted in Mark and Gino being tagged as most wanted people and their images started circulating around. And that in and of itself was enough for them to leave a property where they'd been really, really comfortable and considered really, really well by the owners of that property. And one of the only properties actually where Mark and Gino left without there being a falling out with the owners. They left purely because their image has been circulated on that most wanted show. I've been Australia's biggest manhunt, spanning three states for the notorious father and son fugitives. They couldn't go anywhere. There was kind of conflicting accounts about this and I found that really interesting when I did the book about whether they had been told by one of the owners on the property, hey, we've just seen you on the most wanted, you guys better leave, or whether they themselves had watched it and left. But regardless, within 24 hours, their images circulating as part of that operation they packed up from this property in sort of on the southwestern sort of fringe of Sydney and took off west into the sort of central west of New South Wales or the far west of New South Wales. And that was sort of the start of the final chapter. So they take off, head west, as you mentioned, and we end up in Wagga in 2015 
an infamous moment broadcast everywhere, this high-speed chase. What can you tell me about that time and what unfolded? It was just so incredible in so many ways that you had police shot at in the outback that that footage sort of circulated so quickly and was so powerful and it was a I guess a sort of pastiche in a way of the bush ranger you know that's kind of how it became reported pretty soon after that of you know these two guys on the run in the middle of nowhere sort of shooting at police to evade arrest you know of course they weren't like bush rangers at all but that was pretty quickly what they became referred to as and thought of as and I guess they always sort of had it in them. You know, they always had it in them that they would try and fight from being caught and apprehended, but there was certainly nothing, you know, up until that point that would indicate they would shoot at police. You know, they could have quite easily killed those officers. They denied that they were trying to, but it was an incredibly frightening escalation again in their behaviour. And from that point on, I guess they were no longer sort of these crooks that lived in the minds of farmers that terrorised or that, you know, were people that Connie and the family sort of feared because of the offences that committed against them. They became kind of national figures, not necessarily of sort of infamy, but almost of kind of comedic value. You know, they became the subject of memes. You know, they became, as I said, sort of viewed as like modern bushrangers when, up until that point that spent, you know, the best part of well, more than a decade utterly terrorising decent people. Do you think they ever had a plan from that point in Wagga, you know, at the point of being in a police shootout, what was the goal or do you think they were just running for their lives and pushing it as far as they could take it? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think we should probably go back a step. So between that point in August 2015 where they featured as some of the the country's most wanted people to, you know, a little less than two months later in early October 2015, they go out and work growing marijuana in a remote property sort of near Dunny Doo in Western New South Wales. And they go there because one of the other people who had been working at the property that they'd been working at in the sort of southwestern fringe of Sydney tells them he's got some work for them to do out there. So they go out and they, you know, start setting up this irrigation on this marijuana plantation in the middle of the bush. They again get in an argument with the guy who's running that show and they shoot and kill him. And that's in early October and they're sort of making their way from there when they shoot at police about nine days after they actually commit that murder, but that's when they first shoot at police near Mangopla, near Wagga Wagga. So it's really hard to know what their thought process was at this time, but you can imagine the walls were really closing in. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that murder. It's being treated as a homicide. As the bloodied men were brought into custody, officers searched the farm where they'd been hiding out and they discovered a body. This person is deceased. He has not been formally identified. However, he is consistent with 
who we believe is a 68-year-old man who has been missing since the 8th of October this year. Obviously, the Stockos have you know, rained down terror on so many good people. They have been violent and destructive, but they've not yet killed a person. But then we get to 2015, they go to this marijuana farm and they kill Rosario Chimone, who has mob connections. What can you tell me about him and his character and how he came to be caught up with Gino? So basically Rosario was working with the Stockos on this same sort of property in the southwestern fringe of Sydney and he came to know them through that and when they needed to leave that property really quickly because they'd started becoming sort of part of this police operation where they were wanted, he recommended to them or they somehow caught wind of the fact that he had an opportunity at a marijuana growing property in you know the far west of the state in a place called Dunedoo. Now, Rosario had done that work before. He seemingly has connections to the Nandrangata and the long history they've got of marijuana cultivation in this country. Some of the other people involved in that property as well were similarly connected to that. And, you know, the, the way it generally works is that, you know, there's remote properties like this one at Dunny Do that can be very easily turned into somewhere that vast amounts of cannabis can be grown fairly quickly and, you know, produced for sale and then transported back to markets like Sydney. And, you know, Rosario had done that type of work before. He seemingly was one of the main people in charge of this particular site at Dunny Do. It wasn't his operation, but he was, I guess, almost sort of the manager of it, if you wanted to kind of think about it in that sense. And, you know, in what had become quite a familiar pattern, it seems like they'd had some sort of fight, Gino and Rosario, about how to manage this. I think Gino says in his interview later that it was about irrigation or something similar or maybe about driving a tractor or maybe both. But there was a fight and he, instead of this time, you know, vowing to sort of go back in the middle of the night and slash his tires or burn down a shed, he decided to kill him. And he actually says Mark told him to kill him, which Mark agreed with in his interview. Why that was, I don't know. Again, the context is that they'd been sort of publicly added two months earlier by police as part of an operation to sort of catch them and, and other people that were on the run. So maybe that did funny things to them. You know, maybe they felt so desperate that they had no other way but to kill him. But it certainly was a huge escalation on anything they'd done before that. Is there a chance that because you know, previously, any time the Stockos were kind of getting their perceived revenge, there wasn't really any threat of retaliation from the kind of honest Aussie farmers that they were targeting. Do you think there was a fear maybe that because they were messing with someone who maybe did have a bit of muscle power, had these mafia ties that maybe they'd sort of messed with the wrong person and killed him out of that fear? Obviously wild speculation, but just trying to understand this one as a point of difference. Yeah, no, I think that's completely possible. I mean, if you look back over the other instances in which they'd used violence, there are 
parallels between that and what's happened with Rosario's death. You know, they were worried that Rosario is going to leave the farm, go and tell the people that own that property what had happened and that that could, you know, perhaps flush them out or maybe even worse. So while they've never done anything like murder before, there's certainly enough about their prior offending to show that if they felt desperate and if they felt they didn't have a choice, then they'd take the only choice they felt they had. That's not the end of this conversation. We've released part two of our chat on the Stockos exclusively for Mamma Mia subscribers. Hear Nino's final thoughts about Gino and Mark's conviction and the lasting impacts of their crimes by following the link in our show notes. Thanks to Nino for assisting us to tell this story. If you'd like to read his book, The Stockos Like Father Like Son, you will find it linked in our episode description. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted and produced by me, Emma Gillespie, with audio design by Madeline Joannou. Our executive producer is Gia Moylan. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with another True Crime Conversation.